meeting is being recorded. So I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Michael Claridge, who uh, gained his PhD in physics from Brandeis University, studying the biological and statistical behavior of proteins. And he has also researched binary pulsars at the Arecibo Radio Telescope and made discoveries in the areas of fractional calculus and chaotic systems. He designed and managed the production of one of the first secure phone messaging apps for physician communication and his public lectures, which is kind of where I ran into him from some of his public lectures on YouTube, have shown many new ways to understand relativity and dimensions, metaphysics and biology, and how to include the idea of function in astronomical phenomena. He's also involved in a very, very interesting project right now, which I'm gonna let him talk about as we get going here. But um, welcome Dr. Claridge and this is the meaning code where we kind of explore ideas out there in the universe that have to do with meaning, which often gets skipped, I think, in the scientific universe. So, um, yeah, thank you very much. Very excited to be here. Very uh, appreciative of, of your work, of your channel. Good job. Keep it up. Thank you. Yeah, very appreciative of your many wonderful lectures online, too. So, um, and I think we got. Uh, I got interested in you because you were also exploring the work of Michael Levin, and I've been kind of exploring his work for quite some time. And then when I ran into some of your perspectives on that, I found it quite interesting. So um, <clears throat> one of the things that we had talked about by email before we decided to have this talk was whether or not current science recognizes that there are levels of being or levels of reality. And uh, I wondered if you might like to speak to that. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I think the phrase I in the email, I said something like, I, I find that the physics does actually, modern physics does uh, include and require the idea of levels, but that physicists, the people don't, don't necessarily see that, that that's required by the, uh, by the science itself. Uh, so it can take a while to go into that, right? About what, how that might uh, manifest itself in the physics. And I, I was just rethinking actually our suggested order. So the, the, the lecture I gave on the dimensions of time is actually one example of that. Uh, so I wanna make sure we get to that maybe sooner rather than later. But I guess I'll just say that um, the, I don't, I, don't, I don't know exactly where it came in how, how the levels all got smushed, how they all got smushed down to nothing or down to one level, because we know so much about the universe now, so much knowledge. We know that we have these incredibly small things in us called atoms and molecules that we can't see um, directly. We know we're filled with cells that we can't really experience directly, or maybe occasionally we can. We know that we're part of an earth that is so much larger than any one of us that it's it's almost impossible for any of us to, to grasp it. And we know that that is part of a solar system, which if you look at the sizes, if you look at the scale of distances, the entire solar system is so much larger than any one of the planets. So it's, and then solar systems are all in galaxies. So the, the whole scientific paradigm we have actually has within it the idea of levels. And I, I wonder sometimes about how that happened. How did it all get smushed and I think maybe through the idea of um, 
of materiality, materialism, that, that some kind of a, of a card, a false card got substituted there where somebody somewhere uh, said there's only one material, there's only one form of matter. Now, I'm not sure if that's where things went off, uh, but, we, but that's not true. There's all these different levels of matter uh, in the universe. I don't know if you have any historical perspective on that, like where- Well, I've, where been, I've been reading um, Wolfgang Smith, The Vertical Ascent yeah. and Cosmos and Transcendence, and um, also his other book, Ancient Wisdom. And in all of those, he points back to the uh, to Descartes and what he calls the bifurcation um, between body and mind. And it, he goes into great detail over these three books about how that landed us in this universe where we, I mean, just forget about the idea that there's only one kind of matter. We've landed in a universe where there are a whole lot of people that don't believe that any matter even exists at all, that it's just all in our minds. And where our minds came from, I have no idea. But, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you could spend days on the philosophical problem of how we landed here, but I'm much more interested in looking at the the actual physical universe as it is and as you see it that actually does have levels and i was fascinated by this article is this online someplace this um yes it is possibilities uh, yep it's in my substack it's on my substack channel okay um, i will link to your substack channel and i will link also to this excellent article because you brought up a lot of really salient points here um the first one that really caught my eye is when you're talking about the light, how even one photon of light, one tiny ray of light in a room, <clears throat> the physics shows us that that light travels by all possible paths to get from one point in the room to, even, even if you're looking at least action principle, it still is going to all possible points in that room before it lands where it lands. and. That made me think about something that you had said in a lecture where you were talking about um, a hologram and how, it, well, or a holograph, where, where one pixel or one point in that actually has all the information of the entire yeah. image. Yeah. And so to me, this one photon traveling all possible paths to get through the room, it sounds to me as though it must also have a complete map of everything that's in the room because it had to avoid the things that were of substance in the room in order to get around them to get over to the point where it got. Yeah. So it would have a complete 3D map of the room by the time it got from one side to the other. I think that's a great connection with the hologram. Yeah, one could think for a while on that one. Uh, yeah, I kind of get the image of of, of the, the ray of light traveling all, poss all possible paths is is i'm just repeating what you said is then somehow that that reality or that truth collapses down to the hologram which also has the history of of all paths that's a that's a great connection i like that one and this this is an idea that still i think a lot of people who study it want it to be a metaphor or want it to be a um a, a mathematical artifact that they're, they're like, no, it can't really be that way. And, and, and you know, th th there's a lot of people who have talked about this, 
But when I first ran across it, it was like a light going off for me. And I was like, oh, no, it, it is that way. And this, this is one way to understand this idea of levels. And what do we mean by that? When we say that word, what do we mean? It's a difficult word. We're not taught it much anymore. So we, we kind of flounder a little bit. But this is one, one example of what, of what levels means. That when I, that you and me, our, our awareness, our, our instantiation in this cosmos, we are at a different level than photons of light. We're not at the same level. And so one of the, at one of the, one of the manifestations of that difference is just this, this mystery, this wild thing that any piece of light, as far as we're concerned, we're not, we're not even saying what the, what the reality is like for the light. We're just saying as far as we are concerned, any piece of light must travel all possible paths to, to, to land, before it lands any, in any particular place. And you know, people can look up this, this experiment that's called the double slit experiment. There's plenty of material online for it. And the example I give in the article, which is pretty close to the physics, is if you imagine a room that has a blue wall and a red wall, and then you also imagine that you have this candle or this light source where you can actually let off individual photons of light. Now, these, these experiments have been done many times. In fact, you can, do them in, you can do them in high school now. It's pretty incredible. And you, you, sometimes you will measure a blue photon that, that lands on your eye or on your measuring device. And you can imagine that was a piece of light that went from the candle to the blue wall and then landed on your eye. And then sometimes you measure a red photon because that was a piece of light that went to the red wall, bounced off it and came to your eye. But then sometimes you also measure a magenta colored photon. And then that's a mystery. How did that get there? Now you may think, well, that means that the light first bounced off the blue wall and then bounced off the red wall. And then that, that those joined together. No, because the blue wall will, so, so say the light bounced off the blue wall then you're imagining a blue photon that's traveling. Okay, a blue photon is going to be absorbed by the red wall. The blue photon is not going to bounce off the red wall. So the only way you could get a magenta photon is if that one piece of light simultaneously went to both walls and then came together uh, at your instrument, your eye or your device. It's not a metaphor. I mean, yes, maybe it's a metaphor. All models are a metaphor. But that's the only, and there's so many different experiments that have been done along this, literally books full, books full of different ways of people try, almost trying to disprove it. It's kind of fun trying to disprove it and say, no, 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 no. There's no way that a single piece of light can travel multiple paths at the same time, right? But it is, the data keeps coming back that that's actually how it, how it works. Well, I mean, we're, we're in this debate, this current debate nowadays, um... I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Don Hoffman. I think that's his name. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. The one that yeah. um, the one that has the idea that that we don't actually see that there is no reality to see. Actually, that that we are fitted by evolution to have um, a way through this landscape of particles that's out in front of us. Yeah. And and that we see things only in order to 
help us navigate and that there aren't really any things there that that it's all just you know hand waving <laughs> and wow. and so so we have this on, on the one side we have these people who say there isn't really anything there and then on the other side um one of the things that that uh, dr wolfgang smith brought up was uh james gibson's work on visual perception he was doing some work for the military to help planes land on board the uh, the aircraft carriers okay. and yeah. in order to do that they had to be able to have a specific point of attention that would give them a, a moving visual of where it is that they're supposed to target that landing okay. and in all of the research that he did around that problem it always came up that there is actually something there that if there isn't something there we virtually can't see it because our eyes move constantly. Yeah. There's something called micro saccades yeah. happening yeah. with our eyes all the time. And yeah. therefore, in order for us to pick up a visual, there actually has to be something of substance there. And so he did all this work on it. And um, he yeah, calls them, uh, he I... calls them, um, It's something in the ambient optic array. Um, basically, what he's saying is that out there in the ambient optic array, there actually are forms. There actually are entities, and mm -hmm. that we're seeing those entities. It's not what's been said for so long is that it's just a camera inside our yeah. heads that sees this thing. But he says, no, there's actually a thing there, and we're actually seeing it. And of course, in the common sense world, that sounds ridiculous. It sounds like a ridiculous debate. Yeah, right. <laughs> it does. You know, and it's what you're saying is 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 not mirrored by, but related to. Um, I was looking recently at some of the challenges of artificial intelligence, and the people working on the visual systems, the self-driving cars and whatnot five or six years ago, they thought the problem was going to be how to navigate in the world, that, that the world is filled with objects, and then how do you navigate through them safely, right? And then they had to really, they had to switch gears several years ago because they, they, they still don't know how, how to, how do, they, how do they put it? The, the, they, they, they can't even get to the point of, um, of, of recognizing a world of objects yet. To us, it's so obvious, it's so simple, it's so obvious. There's a cat, there's a window. Literally a two-year-old, if you draw a picture of a cat, a two-year-old will, you know, will point to the cat you drew and then point to the cat sitting on the couch, right? That with these, this world of objects is so obvious to us, but the artificial intelligence is stuck at that point of how do you even recognize that we live in a world of objects? And yet we do, we do, right? you and I do uh, pretty easily, though I think we've, it, it, we've all lost the memory. I wish, you know, if we, could, if we could somehow relive the memory, the experience of going from, because I think human babies, more than most other species, it we have to learn how to see in the world. That we're, we're born, I, one study I, I read said, we're born being able to see eyes. <laughs> we can recognize eyes, human's eyes, right? But, but not a whole lot more. Uh, and then, so we have to go through the experience of learning how to see a world of objects and then navigate through it and touch it and put them in our mouths 
and learn what they're for in all this. Uh, if we could remember that, we could probably answer a lot of these questions. Well, I, th I mean, I think you just pointed up a very important thing there. Part of the way that we learn to see is by using every part of our bodies. Every part of right? our body, right. And uh, AI doesn't yet have that capability no. um, because I recognize the three-dimensionality of something when I stick it in my mouth. <laughs> If I'm just looking at it, you know, like we have a dog and uh, once in a while, our daughter will, will call on FaceTime or Zoom or something like that. And the dog was actually her dog before she okay. moved. And so she'll say, hi, Junebug, hi, Junebug. And Junebug will just look around the room like I hear a voice out there, but she can't see that there's anything on that screen. Exactly. That screen means nothing to her, nothing. right? Yes. Because yes. part of her visual sense is her olfactory sense. Right. She sees through her nose a lot of what she sees. And I, and I think we're the same way. We, we see through tasting and touching and feeling and hearing. And um, perception is a way bigger thing than just a camera. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this idea of the meaning of the object that a lot of what we're seeing could be the meaning of the object. So when I see a chair, that part of what allows me to see it um, is that it has meaning for me. I, I can sit on it, you know, or, and, and you can apply that, you know, you can just look around the room you're in right now and, you know, pretty much everything in it has some meaning. Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word, it's a piece of vocabulary that fits into a larger uh, meaningful world that I live in. And a lot of it's around function. So I'm looking at a music stand over there, right? So I, that's obviously a music stand because its function is to hold music, right? And, and, and things like that. Uh, so that meaning is inherent. Um, and one, oh boy, what was it? Some, some there's there's some there's some traction to the notion that it's it's not just what we see but it's also like what we eat so there's the meaning of a salmon is different than the meaning of broccoli which is different than the meaning of you know grain and that's what that's part of what nourishes us that this notion that we could just grind up amorphous proteins and eat little pills of of uh, ground up protein and little pills of ground up carbohydrates humans we actually could not live we, we we could not live on that because those have have lost their meaning of what it is that we're eating that's really interesting yeah i that i could go down a lot of trails on that i mean yeah. for example um brussels sprouts can have a meaning <laughs> You know, yes. and for some people, that meaning is filled with memories of their childhood when their mother yes. used to cook them into mush. And so they're not even willing to try them prepared well. Right. So. Yes. So if they were forced to eat a Brussels sprout today, all these memories of childhood would come back and would probably also impact the way that your body absorbed it and metabolized it. Because if you're in an anxious state when you're eating, it's not going to nourish your body in the same way. Right. Yeah. Or um, if you're yeah. if you're in a situation where you're being forced to eat, that food is not going to affect your body in the same way as if you're in a situation where you're having fellowship with people and 
enjoy a glass of wine and all that stuff, you know? So meaning is very connected to food and beverages and uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I'm, we, we, uh, let's, let's circle back for a sec to the, to the time question. So mm -hmm. we talked about time and levels and I, and we started with this idea of light traveling all possible paths and there's, um, let's put it up. Let's put up that phrase, um, that uh, phrase from the Catholic mass, um, can you put Gloria, hands on it? Um, yeah. I can. Um, I don't. Just so we can... Let me see if I have that document up there. I'm okay. going to put us on pause so I, we don't interfere with the situation here. This meeting is being recorded. So we're going to share screen here. and. Um, yeah, and this is uh, getting back to the idea of time and levels in physics. Yeah. And so, so this is from a, your article. This is from the article, right. And there, there's a, uh, what might be seen as an unlikely connection here. Um, so what, what you see there, the, the Latin is um, a very well-known phrase in, uh, in older Christianity, gloria patri et filio et spiritui sancto, sicut erat in principio, et nunc, et semper, et in secula seculorum. It's a very difficult phrase to translate because uh, some of the ideas we don't have anymore. So it makes it almost impossible. Um, you can see that the second highlighted area is what you will find in a contemporary translation um, of, the, of, the, of the second line. So the second line in a contemporary translation would be, um, oh, sure, did I didn't? No, that's my translation. Oh, never mind. Okay. Well, okay. Let, let, so let's just walk through it and why I'm highlighting this as an, as an important example for dimensions of time. So what we talked about with light is that last part, the secula seculorum or omnia secula seculorum. So back, this phrase, it's, it's not exactly clear when this phrase originated because the written records, it only shows up in the third or fourth century in the written records. Now I have every reason to expect, as plenty of other people do, that it's it it, it goes all the way back to you know 33 A.D. Uh, it just didn't show up. Uh, but again, there's no written proof for that. And that last bit, secula seculorum, has words um, I forget what they are in the Greek uh, and in the Aramaic, but it it, re it what it means is a world of worlds or a world of all possible worlds or an eon of eons or an eon of all possible eons so this is a word we don't use much anymore but an eon or an age is a completed span of time that has a birth a growth a maturity a decline and a death that's what an eon is so an eon might be say the arc of a civilization so the entire roman civilization from its birth to its growth to its maturity to its decline and to its death that could be seen as an eon or an age or a secula but the idea doesn't there's no limit to how big an age can be so you could have the age of the earth the eon of the entire earth think about the birth 
of a planet, its growth, its maturity, its decline and death, and everything that takes place on it. That also is an eon or an age, uh, a secula. So that last bit, that secula seculorum, if you, if you study it for a while and look at different descriptions of it, it th that's part of what it's talking about is that eons are made up of eons, which are made up of eons. So if you take the earth example, there's the whole earth, the birth, growth, maturity, decline, and death of the earth. And then on the earth, you have a gazillion creatures that each have their own conception, birth, growth, maturity, decline, and death, all the raccoons and all of the trees and all the people. And then inside of those, uh, you have all the cells that go through their own birth and maturity, growth, etc. And that idea of worlds nested within worlds is, is fundamental to, to ancient Christianity, to original Christianity, that it's part of the teaching. And people literally would travel for weeks and months to, to, to go to centers, the seven churches, right? You would go to one of those churches. And this, this one phrase that we're looking at here would be a course of study, days. You spend days talking about this and what it means in, in, in the faith, you know, in, the, in, in, in Christianity. So that was the first part about light. Now let's look at, let's back it up and look at other phrases. So semper, at in semper. So what does it mean, this phrase, that you have these three forces, patri, filio, and spiritui sancto, that yes, manifest in the world of all worlds, but also in semper. What, what is that? So that's a, that's a different dimension of time. We've also lost the meaning of that. I don't know when it got lost. A few hundred years ago, it got lost. Eternity does not mean a very long stretch of time. That is not what it means. And so these phrases like, you know, you'll spend eternity in hell. Okay, that never meant, you know, an infinite number of years, because that's not what eternity is. Eternity is a different dimension of time. It has nothing to do with how many years go by. Um, one analogy that's sometimes used is, is geometry, where uh, if, if, if time is following a line, if I'm living out a line in time, all my moments going one after the other, then eternity is, is a plane that that line exists in. So you got to think about that for a little bit. What does that mean? A plane, a you know, you can draw a line on a piece of paper. The line is just a line of time, but what's the paper? Okay, the paper is this other dimension that the line has to be drawn in. And that other dimension is eternity. And so some writers talk about it as the, the perpetual, it's hard to know what words use, the perpetual existence of every moment of time. That's what eternity is. So my life might only be 80 years long, right? We, we even use that word long. We say 80 years long is how long my, my lifetime is. But the eternity, the eternal existence of those 80 years is some other dimension in time where each moment I have lived continues to exist. So, the, so, so if, I, if I could experience 
we've all experienced moments of hell, right? Some just experiences that are just so painful. Maybe we see we see something about ourselves or we, ju we just catch ourselves doing something so mean, so mean to somebody, right? We actually see us, see ourselves do it, right? And if you could imagine like always being conscious of that, to have a, to have a, 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 a not, a, an awareness that does not fade of the meanness that I just acted on someone, that would be spending eternity in hell. It has to do with the depth of the experience or the, the persistence of the awareness of the experience. That's what eternity is. It, this is just one example, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so this phrase, coming back to this phrase again, uh, this, the, the, this, this creative trinity exists not only in the world of all possible worlds, but it exists, this creative trinity somehow exists in the perpetual existence of all moments of time. Now let's go to the physics a little. Let's, let's, let's take a right hand turn into the physics here. Does physics have anything like this? And it does. Physics definitely has something that is comparable to eternity. And you have to look at how, so this started after Newton, when, when we started drawing these trajectories, particles and their trajectories, orbits, planets, orbits, the, the trajectories of orbits, the equations start to get filled out to be perfected. Uh, you mentioned a little while before the least action principle. You can look at, if you just throw a ball into space, there's only one trajectory that ball can take, and that's going to be a trajectory of least action. What's the least amount of um, effort or, or work or expended energy that that particle can travel? And there's only one line. And physics, Newtonian physics, um, describes that line to you. That line of time, it's, it's, a, it's a line through time. What's fascinating about the physics is there's no present moment in physics. This I know is baffling. It's a hard thing to, to justify, but there's no present moment in physics, Newtonian physics. There's just these lines of time that exist always. You can't distinguish the beginning of the time of that ball you threw from the middle of the time to the end of the time. Physics has no way to tell you about the different moments of time or that they might be traveling. It just says there is this line called the trajectory of the ball that you threw. And that line of time always exists in physics, in Newtonian physics, even up through Einstein physics. It always exists. It never doesn't exist. It always, the entire line always exists. So that's a physics reality about what eternity could mean if we would just see it that way if we if we could understand it that way so why don't i take a pause karen and you can comment or ask some questions or something okay well i'm going to take us off well I, i'm not going to take us off screen share just this moment because i want to look at this whole statement here yeah in principio et nunc et semper et in omnia secula secularum as it is in principle as it now is in this moment, as it is in the perpetual existence of all now moments, and as it is in the eon of all eons or the world of all worlds. 
the first part I think is so important as it is yeah. in principle, yeah. as it is now in this moment. The first thing that's established is that this is a principle and not a regulation. <laughs> okay. I like it. I yeah, like it's, it. yeah. It's a principle. It's not an obligation. It's a principle. It's not a, um, because, because principles allow some, what you would call, I guess, flexibility or allow mm -hmm. some alternative means of accomplishing the essence of the principle mm -hmm. where if it's a, if it's a hard and fast proposition or rule or obligation mm -hmm. or something like that, then you don't have that freedom of movement. You don't have that creative freedom for alternative possibilities. Right. If it weren't a principle, there would be no way that the, the beam of light would explore all possible paths before um, it gets to the other side of the room, right? Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yep, I'm with you. And, and yeah. so it establishes that first, and then it says, in the same way, as that it is now in this moment and it is now in the perpetual existence of all moments and it is in the eon of all eons or the world of all worlds one of the things that got me interested in this whole search through the world for meaning was that i came to a conclusion about 20 years ago that the principles and the elements and principles that govern the making of art well they don't govern it but they describe how art has been made through the centuries. Mm -hmm. That, that um, those elements and principles of art allow for ultimate flexibility in the way something can be achieved mm -hmm. in art. Um, <clears throat> the same work of art could be made any number of possible ways and still you would end up with something that carried the same meaning might not look exactly the same, but it will carry the same meaning as if it has been done another way. And I wondered if there wasn't some way that, that there are principles that work out in physics and in biology and in, in uh, mathematics that are like this, <clears throat> that aren't some hard and fast formula, but actually have room for this flexibility. And mm -hmm. I started thinking about how these principles are kind of like binaries, like light and dark. Mm -hmm. um, that that's an extension between light and dark, but there's something that holds light and dark together mm -hmm. because when, when the darkness changes a little bit, it's because the light has changed. Mm -hmm. And when light changes a little bit, it's because, because of some okay. connection to the dark, right? It's okay. the same way with, colors it's the same way with rhythm it's the same way with texture and those are principles that govern art but there are principles in the world um one of the ones that have you ever read any owen barfield oh a long ago uh, yeah a long, okay. long ago yeah. one of the things that he talked about in his book speaker's meaning where he's trying to distinguish between what are the meaning of words at the mm -hmm. semantic level versus the level of what, how the speaker is using the word. Mm -hmm. And he talked about this binary between accuracy and expression. Mm -hmm. And to me, that one is like, that's kind of like one of the fundamental principles of the universe that there, that there is a 
balance somewhere between accuracy and expression <laughs> for every context. It's yeah. never going to be all one way. It's never going to be yeah. all yeah. the other way. But somewhere along there, there's a perfect balance for each context. But the yeah. tricky part of this is that if you go too far with this, you end up falling over into postmodernism. Because if everything is context, then postmodernism is true. Yeah. So there has to be a level above that establishes the meta view of this principle. And that's why I like this. Yeah. I like it. No, I really, as you're describing it, I, I could feel, feel something in that. That principle allows for a creative universe. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that. And also the, the use of the word, a modern translation of this phrase says, usually says something like, as it was in the beginning. And it's not that that's wrong, but it's kind of wrong. Like it's not, we're not saying that this principle was at the beginning. We're saying this is a principle. This is, this is above, this is all time everywhere, always. It's, it's, it's not just something, it's not, it wasn't present only at the beginning. Is it, is, is it, um, Sometimes that they're translating it that way because does it sometimes use the word RK in place of principle? Good question. You know, that might be the, that might be the, um, the Greek. It's been a long time since I looked at the Greek for this. Uh -huh. mostly, yeah, it's a good. I'm good wondering thing. because, um, yeah, you see this thing even in the, in the book of Genesis, when you actually look at what it, the word for beginning and then in the book of john what it says for beginning it's really talking about this whole idea of principle the the um kind of like design or you know rk is the word that we use not only for um archaeology but we use it also for architect <laughs> and uh, so and probably it's also the same root that's in Archer. When oh. when there's a tar some sort of a target, target. you're shooting for a target, right? And and then that gets all tied up with the whole idea of telos of having an aim. Yeah. yeah. So um yeah, that that would be another one of these binaries, right? That there there's a a target and there's an aim. But you have to, in, in the universe, you have to build in enough flexibility because the target may be always moving. And so your aim has to be able to find its way to the target through a lot of obstacles because the, the birth, growth, maturity, decline, and death are all things that where we go through obstacles to meet those targets. <laughs> you bet. That's where, that's where suffering comes in, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah. The, and the idea of, uh, let's see, do I, I wanted to say, oh, right. So you're talking about the binaries. Uh, and then, but then I, 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 you, you, you brought it to a, to a triple to a to to three you said that there's a yeah. light in the dark 
and and yet and there's something else though i forget the, yeah. your exact words that have it's a relationship and then you they, they if one changes the other changes and there's something about this other principle that yeah is, so this the, the this latin phrase here starts with that triad that triple and i've mm -hmm. i i am i'm more and more i am trying to there like where is physics going um where you know it, or maybe it's not going anywhere maybe it's maybe it's done right that's always a possibility maybe maybe our current what we call physics it's had a good run and maybe it's done <laughs> or maybe not right so I, I i wonder a lot more and more these days about well if every culture before me recognized the need for a triple for for all creative processes uh then let's look there and so physics it, 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 again, the physics often has it, but the physicists don't realize it. So something as simple as the atom, the basic, the atomic model, the atomic model of matter is one of the most successful physical theories. It really is. If you had to like, if you had, if you could create a table of, well, here's my physics model or physics theories, which lead to models. And then here's how many things they explain you know, every model that, that we use explains some things and not other things. The atomic theory of matter would win. It explains so many things. And what's inherent in it is that you have uh, a proton, an electron, and a neutron, right? You, 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 you don't have just protons and electrons. That didn't work that way. And protons are positive and they are huge. Electrons are negative. And they're very, very tiny and very mobile. And the neutron, whoo, I don't know, what's the neutron doing there? What is this neutron? It's neutral, right? <laughs> and yet it is inherently in the model. And without fail, pretty much any physics text you look at will will mention, will we'll just kind of just, I don't know, move on. Okay, then there's neutrons. And you gotta step back maybe and go, well, wait a minute, what is what what there's some truth coming through that's that's literally coming through the model that's saying this is how the universe works at its fundamental level. You have to have a plus and a minus. One of those has to be big and heavy. One of those has to be tiny and mobile. And then there's this other thing, which is neither. It's none of those, right? Well, isn't E equals MC squared also a triple? Okay, well, excellent yeah. point. Energy and, look, and mass and light, right? Exactly. And and 60% of all basic physics can be written in terms of triples. And it's really amazing. In electricity, voltage is equal to current times resistance. Newton's law, force is equal to mass times acceleration. What you just brought up, energy is mass and, and the speed of light. Why does it keep showing up in these triples? And somebody pointed out a while ago that you have to or one one could uh one could admit that i like, let's take forces mass times acceleration that's the classic right f equals ma there's no way to actually define force without mass and acceleration and there's no way to define mass as a physicist no way to define mass without the ideas of force and acceleration and there's no way to really measure acceleration without the ideas of force and mass. So you have three things that can only be understood in terms of each other. It's a pretty profound notion. Well, one of the things you talked about in this article is that um, the relate when you're talking about light, 
and I, I'm assuming by um, corollary also talking about anything in quantum physics, the relationship is key. You say, you say, note, we are explicitly saying that when we experience light, the relationship is key to understanding what is actually being said. So when I experience light, there is light and there is me, and then there is my experience of light. That yes. also is a triple. Um, uh, when you talk uh, about entangled particles, there are the two particles, but then there's whatever is entangling them, the connection, the relationship. I think it's always a triple. And I think if you get down to the very bottom of everything, that all those triples bear a similarity to marriage in this idea of uh, kind of opponent processing. Now, not, not in uh, violently uh, opposed opponent processing, not that kind of thing, but of two things being different, but in the unity between them, the creativity takes place. And so I think that picture, I mean, you're a physicist, so you could disabuse me of this, but I think that picture goes all the way down to the most fundamental levels. I like it. I do. And I'm thinking about the atomic theory of matter or, or the, the, the model, the understanding we have of, of solar systems and planets. Uh, that relationship gets manifested. Uh, so in the case of planets, it gets manifested as orbits. Like that's mm -hmm. how the two are stay in relationship to each other is there is orbiting. There's orbits. Well, and the orbits are elliptical. Yeah which means that in order to get the the ellipse you need to have two foci right so if i if yeah. i have two foci and i put a string between them that's got a little bit of give to it and then i put my pencil in there and i draw i'm going to draw an ellipse around those two foci so yeah. that's a triple and i've often thought about and i mean i don't want to drift off into heresy or anything but i've often thought about it as the father and son and the connection being the Holy Spirit in the same way that the, the, the son and his bride are connected by the Holy Spirit. And, and so those triples also go all the way through the faith where uh, mercy and justice are oppositional and yet they're shielded by grace and informed by grace. So you always have these triples that are talking to each other. Mm -hmm. I think we could live in a much more sane world if 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 this was if if we talked this way, you know, if we, if we were trained to even think more this way, and then if we could see each other this way and talk more this way with each other, I think there would be much less violence. Because violence is often when that when that when that other when that relational part is weak or not or absent, or right? Seven. Then you get yeah. yeah, and then you get the two sides, they kind of got to destroy each other, right? There's no, there's a, yeah, it turns violent then. Well, I mean, that's what's happened to our political system. The, the left yes. and the right are no longer connected. There's no yeah. connecting point. And so they're just off there yeah. getting violent, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. And, you know, I think a, so a lot of us see that and, uh, don't why not, not know what to do, but
but but but we kind of know that we have to take everything we're seeing and hearing with a with a big grain of salt because it's all just these two violent opposites that have been I think intentionally created. But who knows? You know, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I just I, I I remember so vividly. This was a while ago. I saw this little documentary on the Senate and the history of the Senate, and it was only as recently as I think this the the, the scene I saw was from like 1960 or something. Some one of those old coat of color, you know, uh, eight millimeter uh, whatever. Uh, and it was of the U.S. senators during lunch break. They would all go out on the lawn of the Capitol building. And they would have lunch together and they would talk and play for whatever, you know, and then they would go back in and do their jobs. And the commentator was saying, you know, you don't see that anymore. You don't see this idea that you can have two different parties that work together, right? That are not in mm -hmm. separate camps that are forced to fire missiles at each other as a way to manifest their, their points of view. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about violence, would that be a good segue to talk about the electric universe? <laughs> All right, let's give it a try. We can stop, stop, uh, maybe stop close share. That okay. There. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, I think you you had asked if like if the electric universe, if I could talk about it from a, a little bit from how it might have within it this idea of levels, and I was thinking about that since when, since we last spoke, and. Um, so what uh, I would I, I think a great way to see it is inherent in the electric universe model of the universe is this idea of feeding of food feeding where does your substance come from and so what do I mean by that in this context so the electric universe model says that um, that stars shine as an electrical discharge. So it's not like a hot oven. So there's not some big campfire in the sky up there that what is up in the sky up there is an electrical discharge, that that's what we're seeing on the surface of the sun. Where does that force, where does that energy come from? Well, it doesn't come from the star. It comes from the the stars, the relationship the star has to its surroundings, and there are galactic current. There's galactic electric current that is flowing through the entire galaxy to every single star in the galaxy, and that electric current is what what provides the substance, the the food the energy for a star to shine. And that model goes all the way down. It means that the planets also get their energy from the world above them. So planets, I mean, I know we think, we think a little too simply about it. We think that the sun just shines light on us, okay? It's so much more complicated than that. It's, it, that's, that's almost a funny little cartoon to think that that's all that's happening. There's so much coming to each planet from the sun. Electrical fields, magnetic fields, variations. Uh, 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 it's a very complicated message that's coming from the sun to the planet. And then every planet then has to digest 
and convey that energy to its moons, that the, all moons exist inside the electrical body, the electromagnetic body of their, of their parent planet. And so this idea that there's energy which comes from above, literally, you know, to use the idea of levels, energy comes from above and it comes down to each level and each level has to transform it. So the electrical energy coming from the galaxy would literally incinerate a planet. There's no way a planet could, could make use of it, right? So the star is what make, can make use of the galactic energy and the star then has to has to step it down, has to bring it down to a level where its planets, where that star's planets can now get their sustenance. And similarly, just this energy from the sun would, 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 would destroy, not destroy, but it would like fry a moon. Think about asteroids flying around, comets and asteroids. Okay, they don't have life on them because they're just these poor little creatures that are out in this in the solar energy and they just get, they just, they get, fried they get burned right so then yeah so the so the planets have to step down this energy for their moons and you can also bring it to individual creatures on a planet so we all get our energy we know this but we don't think about it we all get our energy from the sun and there's something about the connection between the sun and the earth that gives us an environment in which we can get all of our energy all of it right it all comes from it doesn't come from I don't know how to put it. It doesn't come from us, right? It comes from the world above us. So I, what I'm saying, not all people in the electric universe would say it the way I just said it. The electric universe is a very, I love it. It's a very heterogeneous, it's one of the least organized groups you could ever find, right? There are, so there's not some, there's not some party line, okay? What I just said is one of the reasons why I have been connected with the electric universe for 12 years or so now is because I, that's how I see it. It's like it explains a hierarchical universe from the beginning. Well, so a, a large question occurs to me because I haven't heard the electric universe described before. And, and I'm assuming that most of my viewers also have not heard it described. Yeah. You have this galactic electric currents that are kind of out in the galaxy and uh, affecting the stars. Mm -hmm. What's generating the galactic currents? What, what level are they coming from? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is, um, the short answer is we don't know, uh, but there's a, there's, there's a lot that we do know. Let me just see if I can, uh, can, can I send you a, uh, a well, link? You can, or can I, I can let or you share. You can okay, share. I'll share my screen. Yep, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna share my screen. Okay, so share screen. Bada boom. Share. Okay, can you see the images? Oh yes, they're beautiful. Okay, yeah. So this is what we're looking at here is is images of our galaxy. Uh, not the entire galaxy, but like pieces. We're looking at pieces of the galaxy, right? Again, so yeah. So I always thought they look like neurons in the brain, right? Okay, right. So neurons in the brain, yes, and uh, blood vessels, blood vessels. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so this was something that was predicted by the electric universe theorists. So these images we're looking at here didn't exist before 15 years ago. Herschel and, and Planck telescope are responsible for most of these images. Those, those satellite telescopes went up. I should know this better. 
maybe 15 years ago, I forget, 12 years ago. Um, so we, we didn't know that this is what space around us looked like. Uh, but the electric universe theorist said, what you're gonna see is you're gonna see filaments. You're gonna see filaments connecting stars because that's the model I described, right? You, that the stars are all connected, they're all receiving energy and that, and that they're gonna be all connected to each other. Then the Herschel and Planck telescopes go up, these images start coming back and it was, it was really very exciting for the EU community because it was kind of like, well, we're looking at there. So you can see the, you know, what, we're, what we're looking at from, from a kind of a basic point of view is we're looking at glowing, um, uh, we're looking at warm, warm stuff, warm stuff in the galactic medium. This is infrared light, infrared light and microwave light. It's not something our eyes can see. Uh, these images. These images, our eyes couldn't see these because it's a wavelength of light that's too long for our eyes. <clears throat> but nonetheless, it shows you that there's this, there's some kind of energy or warmth uh, that is flowing from star to star to star to star. There's also a lot of mysterious objects out there. Like, what the heck is this thing, right? Uh, and there's various explanations for what it might be. Um, but I, I tend to to, to be along the lines of um, we need to we need to literally put ourselves in the mind frame of people with microscopes when they started looking at cells and they started to see all kinds of stuff in a cell and that try to imagine that mindset back in whatever 1790 or something you're looking at cells and you're seeing things in your cell and you have you really got to ask yourself you have to have an open mind like what am I looking at what, what are these things yeah, so when you ask where is the energy coming from, we uh, you could think about you could th you could think about a human body, and you could say, well, where is the energy coming from that's pumping the blood through the veins and everything? You could say it's coming from the heart, but it's kind of this never-ending question. But where does the heart get its energy, right? Or you know, so um, the galaxy is a living organism. It has an enormous amount of energy in it simply by being a living organism there's energy and it's all it's not just flying around randomly it's actually being directed and it's causing structure to, uh, or it's participating in structure so that's a long answer to your question about where does this galactic energy come from and then are there similar similar filaments holding galaxies together yes there are yep so let's see if uh what would those be called? The intergalactic. Inter and again, that was one of those things that if you read the, um, if you read the 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 uh, the, 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 the peer-reviewed uh, mainstream scientific astronomy journals, they all go on about surprise, surprise. We're so surprised. Oh my God, we're so surprised that all galaxies are held together by filaments. These are these are computer regenerations. I, I don't see any on here that's not a computer, but but they're still they're 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 based upon data. Okay, they're based upon data. The galaxies exist in clusters. This is a good one. Uh, again, this is computer generated. This is not what we see, but it's based upon data. It is, and the gap. The, each one of these dots is a galaxy. So so just try to fathom that for a minute, right? That each one of these dots and these big clumps of dots are clumps of galaxies. So we're talking thousands, tens of thousands. Hundreds of thousands of galaxies are in a clump, and all of this is connected. It's all connected, connected, connected. 
And so the, the theory of the electric universe is that these filaments are electrical currents. Well, yes. Uh, or electrical yes. energy. Electrical energy, right. Um, yes. Well, so let's and, just look at the very basic, because I'm not a physicist. So at the very basic yeah. level, electrical energy is what? I mean, the world okay. is made up of energy and, <laughs> and matter, and they, are, they, are, um, they can be switched back and forth. You can, you can take a tiny piece of matter and it'll blow up into a whole lot of energy. But what actually is energy? Yeah, I don't know. Mystery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was afraid I, I, you'd I, say that. <laughs> right. From one point of view, we all know what it is. Okay. From another point of view, woof. Uh, well, so it's something that can be used to do work, I guess. You can say that. Yes. Right? That is certainly one explanation of it. Yep. We all know when we have it and we, when we don't have it. Right, we all know the difference. Uh, yeah, but what it is, I don't know. I actually, honestly, don't spend much time on on that fundamental question, very important question. Uh, but the, so, the, but one one maybe one way to bring it to the topic at hand is that energy can be um, manifested or 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 conveyed electrically, and we all know that. Also, you can plug your light into the wall and then somehow that electrical energy gets converted into light or it gets converted into your your washing machine doing your clothes right so we, we've all experienced it day to day it's, it's fundamentally pretty mysterious oh, I, I have to admit that but but you can you can kind of imagine that the this energy this galactic energy is one of the ways i want to be clear about that one of the ways it's being manifested is through the flow of electricity and the creation of, of electrical um, fields and currents. Well, I mean, we, you and I have both been looking at Michael Levin's work and certainly um, at least part of the way energy moves through our bodies is through electrical currents. Exactly. Because, because the cells are speaking to each other via bioelectric messaging of some kind Right. And um, so that's a great my own feeling is that that, that that has to be some kind of a language. The only yeah. the only way that they can communicate this information to each other in order to accomplish the task that they have is if they're if they have some kind of language, even yeah. if it's just as simple as here, not there, this, not that, now, <laughs> not then. Yeah. Right? It yeah. has to yeah. be something. Um. Yeah. So, so we have electrical currents running through us all the time, all the time. And, and that's manifested through um, electrolytes, you know, we have to be in balance with our magnesium and our potassium and our salt all have to be in balance. And uh, I wonder if there's something similar to that in the universe that has to be balanced in order for these electrical currents to to move properly oh i would completely agree with that you know if we come and what you started with with the um electrical nature of biological systems so what all of us 
grew up in the biochemistry paradigm and and uh and it, it's amazing what the biochemists what the what the field of biochemistry has been able to un, un make clear about our chemical nature of life but then something happened i don't know you know where it became that idea became co-opted or changed into that life is only chemistry mm. and i'm not sure where that card that false card got inserted but it i i certainly grew up with that message that life is only chemistry now if you if you just broaden your view a little bit you were just talking about that all of the cells that are in our body are in constant electrical connection with each other we know our nervous system is electrical but now you know the more you can study more and more about uh the electrical nature of cells and these it, it's it's some people might say, well, okay, it's still chemistry and the chemistry, one of the byproducts of the chemistry is this electrical stuff, okay? Uh, but you could flip that. You could say that primarily we're electrical and that the electricity uses the chemistry to achieve the ends that it needs. So that we know we, we, need, to, we need to transmit an electrical impulse from the base of the spine out to the hand so I can pick up my glasses, right? That's what needs to happen. How are we going to do that? Oh well, let's let's utilize let's utilize sodium and potassium uh, atoms. So we'll use chemistry. We'll 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 push the chemistry around to achieve that end of uh, of, of needing to send an electrical signal out. So I don't like this idea of yeah that, that somehow we're just chemistry and and then all the rest is just ancillary. I mean, well, no, maybe we're primarily electrical. Well, I mean, if you look at a tree, a tree is pretty much made out of light and air. <laughs> right? Right, with, with, a, with a few minerals thrown in there, yeah. Well, but, but the, the carbon comes from the air. Yeah, comes from um, the air. Right? Yeah. And so and that's what creates the mass of the tree, but, yeah. but it's the light that is um, furnishing yeah. the the whole system that gets the tree to grow and and right, I, you know what i don't understand is where the tree gets this signal to start producing those little tubules that can jump up on top of each other and they begin to create this tubule from the bottom all the way to the top of the tree to make yeah. sure that enough water gets up to that very top leaf all those little tubules that are inside the tree start out at a certain height and then they the next one comes along and flips up and lands on top of that one. And it's like a little building an elevator as it goes. right? Yeah. 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 So many miracles in the world. It's it just, is, amazing. you know, an, an interesting story, uh, story on that. So that the idea that, um, right, that there's the, the tubules and that the water goes from the roots up to the, up to the leaves. And then somebody, you know, so, uh, there was one, the first description was something like, it's called capillary action, right? That if you mm -hmm. put a, you put water inside of a straw it will it will actually rise up along the edges and so that was in the textbooks for i forget how long I, i'm only rough on the dates here and then somebody actually did the experiment and said well is that sufficient like what has nobody done the experiment so then somebody did the experiment and found out that no 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 capillary action is not sufficient you, there's no way that that yeah. the stuff will get to the top so some so that oh then then you know what it probably is it's the evaporation. It's the evaporation of the water at the top 
that sucks the the water out of you know up to the roots and then that was in the textbooks for a, a decade or two until someone did the experiment and they were like no it doesn't supply nearly enough force it doesn't matter how much evaporation you you know the evaporation will just stop you would need to have like a 10,000 degree sun uh, in order to create enough you know evaporative force and and so now i mean the last i checked i haven't been following this it's a mystery still how how does that liquid get up what's the physics how it gets up to the top right and there's kind of this aggravating cycle okay so this is another element of the electric universe that is so useful is people actually asking questions like well who have you done the experiment you know or is is what you're saying just a theory and with the tree example, perfect example. No, we don't know. We don't know how the water gets to the top. We don't, we, we don't have an explanation, right? So why can't we just say that? Why can't we just say that in the textbook? Why do we have to write something that we think should be true because we can't think of anything else that could explain it? Why are we so arrogant or so, I don't even know what the right word is, hubris, arrogance, that we give an explanation without even doing the experiment as scientists. And so that I'm bringing to the electric universe is that gravity has been put out for the last hundred and couple hundred years as what forms the cosmos. Well, are there any experiments that have been done or is there any data for this? And then you, you scratch a little bit and you're like, no, there's never been any gravitational explanation for how, how, how stars come together. And you're like, wait a minute, what did you just say? There's never been an explanation like, no, in fact, it violates the laws of physics because if you look at, if you combine the gravity with thermodynamics, you get a system that you're, 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 you are proposing is doing work on itself to the, and also to lower its own entropy. You just violated like, you know, <laughs> you get pulled over by the, by the physics police, right? And yet that's what's in the textbooks is that stars and planets and galaxies have come together by gravity. And, and it, but it, so the electric universe says, no, you know, that, that's not how these things work, that things come together through electricity. And, and you, can't, you can do those experiments. If you, push, if you push electricity through a plasma. Okay, but does, does that have get, a presupposition that there has to be something called plasma out there in the universe? Yes, it definitely does, right. You need this. You need the, the 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 energy and the matter. You need you need those two. So you need the what you called earlier. You called it the galactic medium. Is the plasma? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And if you take a formless void, a chaos, uh, without form and void, just blob of plasma, and you and, and then and you push electricity through it. The laws that we understand about how electricity works, they're called Maxwell's equations, they explain a, almost all the behavior we see about electricity. They, it says that that electricity will form its own channels. It will condense itself. It will, it will self-organize, though I hate that term. It will self-organize into channels, and then those channels will have instabilities on them where the energy will... Um, will will uh, congregate or or collide or focus all right so it's it, it's it's inherent in the in the physics of electricity that you would get images like this that we see whereas gravity cannot 
explain. So the electric universe is awesome as a as a as a new direction to head to for young young scientists, um, because it actually has some uh, explanatory power. It actually explains some of the things we see around us. Well, could I ask one more kind of maybe uncomfortable question? Um, I, I don't have enough detail to even be able to explain this, but I do remember that there was something called the Michelson-Morley experiment that supposedly proved that plasma does not exist out there in space. Okay, so you're misremembering that the supposed thing it showed is that there's no... Well, they're using it to say that that it proved that. Anyway, it, no, it no, probably well, showed no. something else, but no. Uh, again, it, it's it's used to show that um, that there's no absolute rest frame. There's no absolute frame of reference. That all motion is relative. That there's no fixed coordinate frame. That's what it's usually used to explain. Usually, it, it doesn't say anything about plasma. But it wasn't the wasn't the experiment set up on the basis of that if there is a plasma out there, then the XYZ would happen and then XYZ didn't happen? No, no, no it's not really. No, it, it oh, was more okay. of the term. The term at the time was ether, ether, ether. Oh, ether. Okay. So ether is different yeah. than plasma. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So plasma really, I mean, the atomic theory of matter also explains plasma because the atomic theory of matter is awesome. And, the, and it simply says that a plasma is ordinary matter where that is so energetic that the electrons and the protons have become separate from each other. That you start, you've started to separate them. Whereas sitting here at my desk, everything is so cold that all the electrons and protons are all, are all glommed together into things called wood and plastic and glass, et cetera. But if you were to heat it up enough, if you were to heat things up enough, those, those, those atomic building blocks would get so wild that the electrons and the protons would actually pull away from each other. Okay, so those, pictures, so those pictures that we're looking at are some sort of plasma field with electricity running through it? Is that? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so then my question is, so in order for the plasma to exist, there has to be the heat first. So the electricity would have had to precede the plasma, right? I can see where you're going, yes. Well, no, I, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just asking the questions as they occur to me. I don't I, have any you. I don't have any destination in okay, mind. All right, okay. uh, no, great question. I, I, it's, it's total, uh, I see it as, as a in a very organic way, in the sense of gal galaxies come from other galaxies and stars come from other stars. And, and I, I, I don't know if one comes first. I don't know if there's a first chicken. You know, it's, it's a, I just see it as this ongoing, incredibly complicated ecosystem that we see around us. And where it starts and ends, I really, I really don't know. Okay, so, so we're, we're the typical world of physics would say that this all started out as a little thing that then grew and and there was a horizontal causation that went on and one thing caused another thing and gravity caused clumping and then stars yep, yep. stars generated inside their very hot interiors created all the beautiful chemical elements and 
fit them out into the universe and they just happen to land on earth so that we just happen to have all the chemicals that we need in order to live a very good life. That that kind of thing. Right. And Jupiter got different chemicals and Venus got different ones. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the electric universe tells a different story from your perspective. Right. So the electric universe would, or this is again, me talking, I'm sure there's plenty, if there's any electric universe, people listening to this, they might be yelling at their screens right now that Dr. <laughs> Claridge has it all wrong. And that's fine. I'm, I, I love it. Uh, so the, right, the electric universe model gives us a framework in which to say that something like a solar system is an incredibly complex, complicated um, uh, 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 or, uh, organism. It's a unit and it's so complicated that we can barely even understand it. It is so complicated. And every planet is different. Every planet has different amounts of of chemical elements. Every planet has a different magnetic body to it. Every planet has a different electrical field. It's all completely different. And it's that, it has to be that way. It's not just random, it has to be. And we don't yet understand why Venus has to be like Venus and why Jupiter needs to be like Jupiter, but that it does. And so the solar system is able to achieve that on its own. So the electric universe model says that stars are always creating elements constantly through electrical transformation of elements and that they can create all the elements they need and that they can somehow in ways that we do not understand, they can somehow get the right elements over to Venus to form Venus and get the right elements over to Jupiter to form Jupiter. And then the planets, once they get going, they can, they can kind of take care of themselves. They can grow themselves. They can create their own elements. And so Earth, the geology of Earth, we can find, find plenty of evidence of transmutation of elements just on the surface of the Earth. So you can have the earth is also creating its own elements. So out of calcium and silicon, it might make some some gold or something like that. But for its own reasons, it's not just random. It's not this meaningless random world. It's a world that is so highly organized that we can just barely even grasp how well organized it is. Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of tumblers are starting to fall into place for me because um, a <clears throat> long time ago, I heard this guy named, I think it was Eric Smith, give a lecture about Earth's battery. Okay. I did a whole episode on it early in the channel. I'm going to have to drag that up. Okay. Um, and he talks about it as though it's just this accidental thing, but but actually the the iron that's at the surface of the earth there are there are channels that go down into the center of the earth that this mm-hmm. iron falls down into these channels and gets down to the center to feed the core so mm-hmm. that the core has got this hot thing going on all the time but then that hot thing is driving iron back up to feed the surface of the earth where the where you know where it mm-hmm. comes up in the water and it it's needed to do whatever it's doing on this. And anyway, the whole thing acts like a big battery because of this constant movement of the iron from the surface down to the center and then back out again. And, and it sounded to me the way he described it almost as though the earth is breathing. Right. It sounded way more complicated. He was talking about it as a way to prove his idea that life accidentally occurred at these hot vents where the where the hot iron is coming back up and heating the water in the sea 
and that that's that was driving somehow chemical elements to gather together and become life that was his whole theory yeah but but while he's talking about that he's explaining this gigantic earth battery mm -hmm. <laughs> wow there's a lot more complicated stuff out there than most of the scientists are even willing to talk about. Really they don't want to talk about those things. And, and one of the things that I see in what you're relaying there is this, is this idea, this principle of circulation. Anywhere we look, there, there, there is circulation and movement. It doesn't matter what level we look at. And so, yes, the earth... I, these pictures we see of the earth where it's got, you know, we, we cut away the earth and it's got a little red center that we call the core and it's got this orange thing around it that we call this, right? And it's just this three circles with inside of each other. No way. That is not what is inside our planet. And the inside of our planet has got channels and stuff is flowing all over the place. And it's so complicated. It's so minutely structured. And I wouldn't be surprised if what he was saying is true, that there's a flow of iron that goes literally from the surface down and there's channels. It's not just, it's not just diffusion, right? There's like channels <laughs> and that's their job is to get that iron flowing. Yeah, and, you, and so in the, in the solar system, in the electric universe model, so in, in our old picture, the gravity model that we grew up with, all of us you know, listening to this right now, there's, there's a sun in the middle and then there's these planets and there's empty, there's blackness in between, there's empty space in between, okay? That could not be farther from the truth. It, 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 what, the more we study it, the more we look for it, there is this, this plasma, this electrical substance that fills the entire solar system. And it's not just a blob. It, it, it forms itself into channels and, and circulatory pathways that, um, that we're only just starting to be able to measure. And, uh, and so you have to picture in your mind, not a bright sun and then a bunch of black space and then a planet. You have to picture like channels and threads and pathways that go out of the sun and go to the earth and go out of the sun and go to Jupiter, to every planet. And then the planets also connect. So when something happens on Jupiter, and we've known this for a long time, when something happens to the magnetosphere of Jupiter, the earth's magnetosphere knows about it. The, the, if, if something whacks, you know, if, if, if Jupiter gets hit by a solar storm so that the magnetosphere of Jupiter goes ring, then our, the magnetosphere of Earth will also go ring, you know, but much quieter and at a different frequency. So you have to picture all the planets connected by threads, by, by pathways, and then the whole thing is spinning and spinning and spinning. It's, it's, it, it's so complicated and it's so interconnected. Yeah, I, I love those images they have online. The, somebody did some, some video of of the sun moving through space with all the planets trailing yeah. around it, right? And it, it, I love it, that too. it creates yes. this beautiful pattern out there beautiful. in space. Right. And, yeah. right. Happy accident. So we're, so, we're getting close to the end of my time. Let's be judicious and then we might have to set a different, uh, we might have to set another episode sometime. Hey, I would, I would totally, totally be into that because I, I still would like to hear you talk about your experiment. Oh, right. Oh, boy, oh, right. boy, boy. But before we, you know, maybe we could make that another episode because I yeah. wanted to bring in one more thing before we stop. And that is sure. you're talking about this principle of circulation and and the sun and the, the channels going out to the earth and and uh, 
you know, chemicals and all of that kind of thing. And it made me think about the way that trees, well, not just trees, but there are certain kinds of ecosystems where the plants roots in the, in the soil, actually, if they have excess of whatever that they're feeding or needing, they'll actually send it out into the soil so that the other plants, even of a different variety, can gather that in and use it for their needs. And it's as though these uh, rooted plants underground are all helping each other, signaling each other somehow, I need a little bit of this. What can you give me? And the roots act as that channel for them. Exactly. And, you know, it, it, it's this, what you're describing is this other side of that's, that's not talked about with the Darwinian theory of, of, of evolutionary biology and, and, which is that it's not, you know, it's not just what species, what individual species is most fit to survive in its niche. It's like, what ecosystem is the best at all helping each other? And yeah, an ecosystem where all the different trees and plants and mushrooms can all help each other and the mushrooms can transfer. That's a much bigger picture than individual lonely frightened creatures trying to eat and kill each other and have sex right it's a very different picture which which we have to bring in we have to mm-hmm. and and i think you're right if you want to expand that to a solar system level again we're just scratching the surface of these questions because no one's looked for it no one has has asked the question well what kind of electromagnetic information is transferred from the sun to jupiter and jupiter to the earth and then from the earth to the moon no one's asked the question yet, right? So it's literally like thinking a forest, you know, back 20, 30 years ago when we looked at a forest and we thought, well, there's a maple tree and it's all alone and it's fighting against the other oak trees and against, you know, and then you learn because no one asked the question, well, are they sharing? Maybe they're all sharing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and once you ask the question, you're like, oh my God, they're all sharing. What's going on, right? We had the wrong picture in our mind. So part of what you folks are doing at the Electric Universe is trying to come up with experiments that you can do to further explore this problem space. Exactly, exactly. And and for the last several decades, um, it's been, uh, you know, really inventive, creative, usually people who are spanning disciplines, right? So you have a geologist who also studied law, who's also an artist. And that geologist will go and look at out in the world, world of geology with this idea of electricity and be like, do I see electricity manifested in the geology? And, they, and, they, and then they find it. And then you have someone else, you know, like me, who's a trained, trained in biology and chaos theory and astronomy. And then when I look out, do I, I, I can ask different questions like, well, do we see that the sun is connected to Jupiter and Jupiter is connected to the earth and the earth is connected to its moon? And then, yeah, you go look and you're like, oh, it is, right? And so part of it is observational evidence. What, what should we look for? Because it's hard as an astronomer to run experiments. What should we look for that would support this model? But then, yeah, maybe we'll have to set a different time to talk about the Sapphire experiment where we're, we, we, you know, we were like, no, we want to we do some lab. We want to do some lab work. What's, a, what's an experiment we can do in the lab that'll, you know, that'll help move this, this these ideas forward? That's a great teaser for the next episode. It Let's is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this has been a delight. And uh, yeah, I agree. Do you prefer Dr. Claridge or can I call you Michael or Mike or how do we Michael go is fine. Michael, Michael is totally okay. fine. 
Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael. It, it, I feel honored to have had the opportunity to talk to you and you have certainly expanded my mind, so. <laughs> Great, and thank you again. I really appreciate your, your, your lot, lot of effort you put into keeping your channel going. I really appreciate that. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Thanks okay. a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.